I got a better laugh uh, this time than in the early service. But uh, I think I managed to average uh, a trip to Ikea for every decade of my life, which is much too frequent. But while I uh, dislike going to the store, I do actually appreciate their furniture, because even I can put it together. Even I can uh, follow their pretty simple instructions, armed with nothing more than an Allen key. And we do quite like simplicity. At least I do. Well, Jesus specializes in simplicity, and in our passage today, he's dealing with a very important matter, critical matter. But he explains that the answer is, in fact, very simple. The issue in focus is of eternal significance. The issue is, how can a person enter the kingdom of God? Could there be anything more significant, more important than that? How could a person enter the kingdom of God? And Jesus in this passage reveals that the answer is in fact remarkably simple, extremely simple. We have a number of people, or or in fact a number of groups, encountering Jesus in our passage. Verse 9, there are some who were confident of their own righteousness. They need to encounter Jesus. They need to hear what he has to say on this matter. But then verse 15, there's the disciples, Jesus' closest friends, and they need to hear it. And of course, there are little children. They not only need to hear what Jesus has to say, but they perfectly illustrate it, as we will see. This is all about how someone can enter the kingdom of God. But I want to say, for those of us who are already in that kingdom, there is significance too. Because life within the kingdom of God works on the same basis as entry to it. We'll see that these principles that we're going to uh, think about this morning are not only relevant to those who need to come into the kingdom, they're relevant for us who are in it already. Because this is how kingdom life works. We need to never forget these things. And the key message is this, the kingdom of God is not something to be earned, but received. The kingdom is not to be earned by hard work and good deeds. The kingdom is not to be earned, but received. So how can we receive it? It is simple, simpler even than Ikea instructions. It's as simple as ABC. A, abandon your pride. I need to work out with the back. Who's clicking it on? You are. Excellent. Abandon your pride. Jesus tells this parable to those who are Proudly self-confident, verse 9, to some who were confident of their own righteousness and looked down on everybody else. To be confident in one's own righteousness inevitably leads to looking down on everyone else. And this is a terrible, terrible place to be. These were people who were confident that God accepted them based on their own goodness. Basically, these are people who are looking inside themselves and thinking, I'm good enough for God. They make a judgment based upon what they think of themselves. It's like the little boy who came running into his mother and said, Mum, Mum, I'm nine feet tall. And Mum looks at the little boy and says, No, (laughs) no, do you're not. But he's insistent, I'm nine feet tall. And so mum asks, well, how did, you, how did you arrive at that conclusion? And he replies, well, I took off my shoe and used it to measure myself. I'm nine shoes tall. That's a foot. 
And mum explains he's using the wrong measurement. His shoe might be the length of his foot, but it's not 12 inches. He might be nine shoes tall, but not nine feet tall. In his mind, using his measurement, he's a giant. (laughs) Reality is he's a little boy. And we're so like that. These people in verse 9, they were like that, looking inside themselves, measuring themselves by what they thought was the right standard. And inevitably, if we do that, we base the judgment on how we compare with others. I must be okay with God, because I'm not as bad as them. To be confident in one's own righteousness inevitably leads to us looking down on other people. And the the trouble is, it's all based on our personal self-judgment. That's what these people in verse 9 were doing. And Jewish society in Jesus' day was full of people like that. Religious people who kept the law. They did everything required of them, and often more. They kept the letter of the law, and so they justified looking down on those who didn't. The trouble was, they kept the letter of the law, but not the spirit of the law. So they gave 10% of their income to the temple, but then on their way out from worship, they walked straight past the beggar without doing anything. So Jesus tells this parable. It's aimed at people who think themselves as good as they need to be. And it's designed to prick their conscience. And it's designed to do the same for us too. There are some, maybe some here this morning in the building may well be some watching online, and you think you're good enough for God. Well, listen to what this says. But it's not just for those who are outside of the kingdom. What about those who are in? Well, I think we'll see it pricks our conscience as well. Verse 10, two men go up to the temple to pray. One a Pharisee, one the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, well, he's the epitome of outward goodness. Diligent, precise in keeping the law. The tax collector is the opposite. He's the outcast, the rogue. He's obviously sinful. And the people in verse 9, the proudly self-righteous, are to see themselves caricatured in this Pharisee. So in the story, the Pharisee, he goes to pray and he goes into the temple courts and he goes right to the center. And he stands by himself and in a loud voice, speaks his prayer, verses 11 and 12. God, I thank you. Thank you that I'm not like the other people, the robbers, the evildoers, the the adulterers. Thank you that I'm not even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give a tenth of all I've got. Uh, It can't really be called a prayer at all, can it? It's very self-congratulatory, proud and arrogant. Now, Now, don't get me wrong. There is nothing wrong at all in thanking God for keeping us from sin. Nothing wrong with that. Nothing wrong, for example, as a married man, to give thanks to God for keeping me faithful to my wife, because that is a gift of His grace to us. But this Pharisee is not doing that. He's not thanking God for His heavenly kindness. He's comparing himself to others. And rejoicing that he's better than all of them. He bases his claim to right standing with God first on what he's not, and second on what he does. 
I thank you I'm not like other people, he says. He's measuring himself, measuring himself against others. And in his, his eyes, of course, his life measures up to much better than theirs. And, and in all honesty, it probably is. But we do the same. We measure ourselves, our goodness, our rightness. And we come to all sorts of conclusions. We use the wrong standard. We're like the little boy measuring his own height. We use our standards. And very often we measure ourselves against other people. I'm, I'm not a robber. I've never robbed a bank. Oh, you'll be pleased to know that, by the way. You never asked me that at the interview stage. Uh, but I've never robbed a bank. But there have been times that I've robbed my family by spending way too many hours working and not enough time with them. I've not robbed a bank, but I sure am a thief. Well, how do I compare to these evildoers? I've never murdered somebody. They never asked me that either, but I've never murdered somebody. And yet have I had bitter thoughts against people? Have I despised someone? Like this Pharisee, I've, I've never had an adulterous affair. But have I always honoured my wife and loved her as I ought to? Have I, have I never glanced admiringly at an attractive woman? You see, measuring myself against others, against robbers and evildoers and adulterers, measuring myself against them, I might stack up okay, but measuring myself against God's standard, well, how do I measure up then? How do you measure up? See, we all face the same trouble that this Pharisee did. He stands for those in verse 9 who consider themselves righteous by comparing themselves with everybody else. But those are wrong standards. Our lives, our hearts are measured by God's standard. Uh, but the Pharisee, well, he, he not only measures himself by what he's not, he measures himself by what he does. Verse 12, I fast twice a week and I give a tenth of all I get. Now, those are great things to do. Those are really important things to do. And he does what the law requires of him. And those are good things to do, by the way, not only by what the Old Testament law commands... They're still good things to do. But the Pharisee does what the law commands, and, and he makes a show of it probably as well. He, he, outwardly, he looks very good. He bases his claim to right standing with God on these good things he does. But there's danger in that. How good enough is good? How, how good is good enough for God? You see, this Pharisee bases his confidence on how he compares with others. Well, how about the person who fasts three times a week? Or how about the person who gives 15%? How good is the Pharisee then? Is he good enough? Uh, these are questions that every other religion in the world has to battle with and simply cannot answer. Those are questions that the reformers asked of Catholicism, for example, and it could not answer. How good is good enough? If we're honest, our default position is to be just like the Pharisee like those who were confident in their own righteousness, those who would come to God with hands full of all sorts of achievements and brownie points in the hope that they stack up to being good enough for God. Stack up enough for God to say, yeah, that person's righteous. That kind of religion is barbaric, soul-destroying. 
It's the absolute opposite to the message of the Bible. You see, the whole point of this parable is that self-confidence cannot get you into the kingdom of God. Building up achievements has never been able to get you in. Living a good life cannot get you into the kingdom of God. We need to abandon our pride, lay down all those accomplishments, and come to Jesus empty-handed. As the hymn says, nothing in my hand I bring, simply to thy cross I cling. Will you enter the kingdom of God? If so, abandon your pride. And come to Jesus with the empty hands of faith. But can I ask a question to those of us who are already in the kingdom of God? Because I think there is a bit of a sting in the tail here as we look at what Jesus says about the Pharisee. If you've come with the empty hands of faith and abandoned your pride... If you've come and you've acknowledged that in order to be saved, you need a righteousness from God that is outside of yourself, outside of your own ability. If you've done that, you've come with empty hands to Jesus, then on what are you basing your ongoing relationship with God? On what are you basing your favor with God right now, today? Because I do think we Christians have a bit of a problem here, because so often we are functionally like the Pharisee. We assure ourselves, we base our ongoing favor with God on the things we do. Maybe our commitment to the church, or our service, our giving. Maybe the number of people we tell about Jesus. Now, none of those are bad things. In fact, they're all really good things. But if you're a Christian and today you think you've got God's blessing and approval on your life because you read the Bible this morning, or because your standing order has gone into the church's bank account this month, or because you're here in church this morning, think any of those things, you're a functional Pharisee. Wow. I know way too many pastors who go around with an air of superiority because their ministry and think their ministry is more valuable than anybody else's. Their sacrifice somehow merits more blessing than everybody else. I know way too many Christians who look around the church and complain, well, they're not as committed as me. It's a functional Pharisee. God, look at me. Aren't I great? I'm so much better than them. I'm more committed than they are. By all means, serve God diligently and sacrificially, but please do not fall into the trap of being a functional Pharisee, thinking that those things somehow earn extra blessing or even extra righteousness. Stop comparing yourself to others. May we measure ourselves against the right standard, who is Jesus. And when we do that, our only response is to abandon our pride and rejoice in His welcoming, correcting, never-ending love. A, abandon your pride. How are we to receive the kingdom of God? Abandon your pride. B, bank on mercy. You see, the other man in the parable, the tax collector, he's the exact opposite of the Pharisee. Now, the tax man is not exactly popular today, but in first century Palestine, tax collectors were just about the lowest of the low. Rome imposed taxes on on their conquered people, but they got Jewish people to do the dirty work. And 
their pay, these Jewish tax collectors, their pay was whatever extra they could extort from the people they were collecting taxes from. So tax collectors were deeply unpopular. They were considered traitors, despicable. So there's huge contrast between these two men. One was one was religious, the other was ungodly. One came right into the center of the temple, the other stood at a distance. One stood up and prayed about himself, the other wouldn't even look up to heaven. But what's at the heart, what's at the core difference between these two guys? It is that the tax collector is banking on mercy. He's come empty-handed. He knows his life is a mess. He knows he's spiritually bankrupt. That even his best efforts, even his greatest attempts at goodness fall short. Sure, he could measure himself against somebody. He could go to the, he could go to the town prison. And he could compare himself to the convicted murderer. And then he could go to God and say, God, thank you, I'm not as bad as him. But he realizes the absolute futility of that kind of approach. He knows he cannot get to God that way. He's banking on mercy. What is, what is mercy? Well, mercy, mercy is God not treating us as our sins deserve. This man's sin was great. And he knows he deserves to be condemned by God. He knows he deserves to have the door shut in his face. And so do we, by the way. But he comes with the empty hands of faith. He's banking on mercy. It's a story of a woman whose son was imprisoned by Napoleon, the famous emperor. She came to the emperor seeking a pardon for her son. And Napoleon responded, with well, the young man, your son has committed a serious offense, not just once, but twice, by the way. And justice demanded that he be put to death. And this mother said to, Na- to Napoleon the emperor, I- I'm not seeking justice, sir. I'm pleading for mercy. Uh, and apparently Napoleon responded, but your son does not deserve mercy. And so the mother said, that's the whole point. <laughs> it would not be mercy if he, are, if he deserved it. But that's all I'm asking for. Apparently the story goes, Napoleon showed mercy and spared the son because this woman had taught him a valuable lesson. It would not be mercy if he deserved it. This tax collector knows he's undeserving. His simple prayer is, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. If you come to God like that, his only hope is that God will not treat him as his sins deserve. That's my only hope. It's your only hope that God will not treat us as our sins deserve. This tax collector's sins, our sins, means that by right we ought to be shut out of God's kingdom for eternity. Our our sins are great, but his mercy is more. It's the case that we can only bank on mercy if we first abandon our pride. So what are you banking on? How are you planning to enter God's kingdom? What are you banking on for right standing before God? Verse 14, Jesus says, I tell you that this man, the tax collector, rather than the other, went home justified before God. 
Justified means to be declared right by God. It's a legal term. God, the righteous judge, declares us free from the condemnation our sins deserve. You see, mercy is right at the very heart of the gospel. There's a children's song all about justification. It defines it like this, just as if I'd lived Jesus' life. The whole point is we haven't lived Jesus' life. He's the only one who ever did live a perfectly righteous life. He's the one that lived the kind of righteous life that this Pharisee even could not live. For those who come in faith to Jesus, who abandon their pride and bank on mercy, God looks upon us and says, it's just as if you'd lived Jesus' life. Isn't that extraordinary? That's the mercy we need. He doesn't punish us as our sins deserve, but he considers considers us righteous because his son was righteous. All those who exalt themselves will be humbled. That's what the Pharisee in this story could expect. That's what the people in verse 9 could expect. Those who puff themselves up, those who think highly of themselves, God will bring them down. But those who humble themselves will be exalted. There is hope only for those who will come empty-handed, who will come helpless and humble to Jesus. And you see, ultimately, Jesus himself, he's the one that's the fulfillment of those words in verse 14. He humbled himself. He willingly left the glory of heaven to enter our world. He humbled himself by taking on our humanity. He humbled himself all the way to the cross, where he died a criminal's death for our sin. But God raised him from the dead. God exalted him to the highest place. He was humbled. He's now exalted. He offers the same to all who will come to him. Those who will humble themselves will enter his kingdom and share in his glory. The Christian life, life in the kingdom of God, in the here and now, in this world, is one of constant humbling. But there is inexpressible glory to come. The kingdom of God is not to be earned by good behavior or trying hard to please God. It's, earned by, it's not earned by living a good life or having high moral standards. The kingdom of God is not earned, it's received. How? Abandon your mercy. Abandon your pride. Bank on mercy. And see, come like a child. There's a reason that Luke goes straight from this parable to tell us about a time when little parents brought their little children to Jesus. It's because it perfectly illustrates the point of the parable. Now, in first century society, children were at the bottom of the pile. They were unimportant. They had no status, no rights, and, and yet children form such an integral part of Jesus' ministry. He's already raised the daughter of Lazarus, uh, the daughter of Jairus. Now, children are brought to him. Children are frequently part of the ministry of Jesus as you read through the Gospels. And Now, this moment is explosive. You see, parents were bringing their children to Jesus. They wanted him to place his hand on them and bless them. They knew there was blessing from the hand of Jesus for, for their children. And, and yet the disciples, they didn't get it. They're still trapped in this cultural mindset. And, and so to them, this is just an irritation. It's an interruption it's stopping Jesus from doing the important work. 
might be stopping him getting rest. So, so best get these troublesome parents and babies away. So they rebuke them. But verse 16, Jesus called the children to him and said, let the little children come to me and do not hinder them. The kingdom of God belongs to such as these. What, what a moment. A moment full of tenderness as we see the heart of our Savior for the unimportant. He's shown compassion on the hungry and hurting. He's shown his power over the dead. Now he shows there's a place in his heart, even for children. Let them come. Don't hinder them. Just a, a little aside here, by the way, that we need to get straight in our understanding. It is possible for children, little children, to become Christians. I know because I'm one of them. I asked Jesus into my heart when I was four. Did I have a good grasp of theology? Could I articulate the church's basis of faith? Could I tell you what justification by faith meant? Of course I couldn't. But I was a Christian. You know, too often we place way too many barriers in front of believing children, all sorts of tests that we create by which they have to prove themselves to be genuine believers. Friends, let's not hinder children coming to Jesus. Don't be skeptical when a child tells you they've placed their trust in him. Let's not assume that all the children in our church family are unbelievers. Some of them are, but many of them have already placed their trust in Jesus. They've already come to him in faith. So let's not hinder them. Let's learn to love and nurture them. But why, why does Luke put this episode here? It's because there's no better illustration of humility than young children, these little children, babies. The explosive truth is that these children have a better chance of entering the kingdom of God than the Pharisee. He's a religious leader. Yet these children have got a better chance of entering, receiving the kingdom of God than he has. Verse 17, truly I tell you, anyone who will not receive the kingdom of God like a little child will never enter it. That doesn't mean we have to be children. It means we have to be like children. See, God receives the humble and the humble receive the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God is not earned, it's received. That's why Jesus illustrates the point with these little children. They don't earn anything. So what does it mean to receive the kingdom of God like a little child? And incidentally, it is not only, we don't not only have to receive the kingdom of God like a little child, this is what kingdom life looks like. This is what life for all of us who are believers looks like as we live in the kingdom of God we're to be like children. What are characteristics of childlike faith? As we close, let me just draw out five. I think there, there, there may be many more, but there are five that strike me as really important. Characteristics of a childlike faith. First, childlike faith is simple. You tell a child the truth, and they just believe it. Total trust. Uncomplicated, unqualified, unmitigated trust. That's how a little child operates, isn't it? If I stand Amelia, my youngest, she's three, if I stand her on the kitchen worktop and tell her to jump into my arms, she'll do it. I know she'll do it because we've tried it. She trusts me. 
unqualified. In fact, she'll jump into my arms even if I haven't told her. She'll just take me by surprise and jump, trusting that I'll catch her. Now, by the time you get to Caitlin's age, she's my eldest, 10, if I stood her on the kitchen worktop and told her to jump, she'd do a scientific calculation to try and work out whether I was strong enough to catch her. That's the point. Come as a little child. One whose trust is just so uncomplicated. So pure, so simple. Childlike faith is simple. Second, a childlike faith is helpless. Now, an infant can do nothing for themselves. Uh, if, you, if you're a parent and you can remember back to when your babies were, were newborn and they woke you up screaming in the middle of the night, how many of you went into their bedroom and told them to go downstairs and get a bottle out the fridge and feed themselves? You don't do it. They're helpless. They can't do anything. They're dependent. Come to Jesus as a little child, helpless, dependent on him for everything. Third, a childlike faith is willing, willing to receive. Children know how to receive a gift, don't they? They just do it. They just take it. They receive it. You you give a child a present. They don't spend a few months trying to figure out whether they want it or deserve it. You give them a gift wrap box on Sunday on Christmas morning, the wrapping paper does not stay on for long. A little child knows how to receive a gift. And the same is, same is true in the simple things of everyday life. My children sit down each evening to dinner and they just take the food, unless it's got onions in it or something like that. But generally they just take it and eat it. They don't sit there wondering if they deserve it. So too with the kingdom of God. It's a gift to be received. We don't deserve it. But it's God's gift to us in Jesus. A childlike faith just receives it. Fourth, a childlike faith is responsive. Little children receive a gift and they respond with love. Thanks. And by the time a child gets to seven or eight, you try and get them to write a thank you card. It's like getting blood out of a stone. But when a little child, you give them a gift and they just flood you with hugs and kisses. The love flows in response. 1 John 4 verse 19 says this, we love because he, God, first loved us. So come with a childlike faith that receives God's love for you and responds with love and thankfulness. Finally, a childlike faith is a growing faith. Experiencing the birth of a baby is just about the most miraculous thing you can ever see. If I could travel into space and see the stars or stand on the moon and look at the earth from, from that distance, if I could do any of those things, I still don't think I would have seen anything so spectacular as the birth of a baby. Now, the reason that the birth of a newborn baby is so spectacular is precisely because that newborn is created in the image of God. And that means that he or she has a soul which can, by grace, be conformed to the likeness of Jesus. And as a baby grows and develops and flourishes, so to a childlike faith grows and develops and flourishes. A childlike faith is not a childish faith. There's many people that make that mistake. I'm sure you know many people with a childish faith. That's not what the Bible calls for. 
people that are content to kind of just stop at the starting line. That's not the goal of the Christian life. God does, God does not give us the kingdom and expect us to enter it and huddle at the gate. <laughs> That's not the point. We are to grow. We grow in knowledge and we grow in grace as we walk with Jesus day after day and year after year. We grow, we flourish as we live life in his kingdom if we live with a childlike faith. We move on from a childish faith. Of course we do. God wants us to do that, but we should never grow up from a childlike faith. If we do, we end up like the Pharisee. Come like a child. Receive the kingdom of God as a child. Simple, helpless, willing, responsive, growing faith. That's a childlike faith. Receive the kingdom of God as a child. And when you've entered, never, never forget this ABC. There's, there's no fruitful life in the kingdom of God without this ABC. Because kingdom life works on the same basis as entry. As we grow as Christians, as we flourish in God's kingdom, this ABC is still, is still a guidebook to life in the kingdom of God. We don't want to end up like the Pharisee. We want to be like the little children. The kingdom of God is not to be earned but received. It's as simple as ABC. Abandon your pride. Bank on mercy and come as a child. With the empty hands of faith, come to Jesus alone is life and joy and peace come to jesus who is king in this glorious new kingdom god is building receive it as a gift and enjoy it forever may god bless you kevin i trust you've been challenged by what you've just heard lord have mercy on me a sinner was the, was the tax collector's cry, wasn't it? Have you cried out for that mercy also? Come like a child and receive Jesus. Let us uh, stand and we'll have our final song, Come and Stand Before Your Maker.
As we finish our time together, let us listen to these words out of the book of Jude. To him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you before his glorious presence without fault and with great joy, to the only God our Saviour, be glory, majesty, power and authority through Jesus Christ our Lord, before all ages now and forevermore. Amen. Thanks, Kevin.